right, thank you so much for joining us today. I just want to start off by saying when I was 10 or 11 years old, and I was dragged to church by my parents, I thought it was the most boring hour of the whole week. And uh, now that a little bit of life has happened, our sermon today is about how I've come to believe that uh, church is one of the most beautiful things that we experience during the week. And so I'd like to point out some things from the passage that was just read to us, Acts chapter 2, that, that sort of lay out the ideals and the beauty of the church, hopefully so that we can be inspired. I want to start off by talking about an example of a time that a, a moment turned into a movement, because that's really what the story of Acts 2 is all about. In the 1960s, there was this product called the Snurfer. Did anybody here have a Snurfer? Ah. All right, it's a play on the word snow and surfer. And the Snurfer was essentially a sled that you could ride down a hill standing up. Picture something that looked like a single wooden water ski without any bindings on it. Had a little twine rope in the front. And uh, they were never hugely popular. It's estimated that under a million snurfers were ever sold. But then, in the mid-1970s, a guy named Jake Burton, who loved riding on his snurfer, decided he'd have more control and be able to ride faster and steeper if he put a little grip tape on the top and uh, some adjustable rubber straps. And it was in that moment that the snowboarding movement was started. Is anybody here part of the snowboarding movement? 7.9 million Americans went snowboarding last year. 800,000 snowboards were sold in our country. In 1998, snowboarding became an Olympic sport. Forbes magazine estimates that snowboarding, since its invention, has added over $20.3 billion to the U.S. economy, I think at least half of that was just in local marijuana shops. <laughs> All right, moving on. How fascinating that we can trace this incredibly large growing movement back to one precise, exact moment. Like I said this afternoon, I want us to look at another time, a time in the Bible when a specific moment turned into a beautiful movement. In Acts 2, we see the exact moment when the Christian church starts. And I think there's some really inspiring and encouraging things that we can draw out of that moment that are relevant and beautiful for us today, this week, each Sunday. So let's spend the next 15 minutes learning about uh, this exact moment that turned into this beautiful movement. Uh, there is an outline in your bulletin, and I just want to talk about it in two quick parts. In section one, I just want to draw out some key overlooked observations from the context that happened in this moment. Uh, in the start of the church. And then in section two, really quickly, I just want to wrap up with a couple encouragements for you regarding church life and all that it offers. So let's start off with three things that uh, are, are easy to miss in this story, but also really beautiful and really inspiring. The first thing I want to point out is this, this new thing, this new movement, this church, this Christian church, was always intended to be incredibly fruitful and fertile. All right, let me talk a little bit about that. So Acts 2, verse 2, tells us that this moment, these kind of supernatural things that we heard about read to us in the scripture from the worship team, uh, happened on a holiday. 
And if you grew up going to church like me, you might be under the misunderstanding that the holiday itself, Pentecost, came from this story, this moment. But of course, a careful reading reminds us that they were already gathered to celebrate the holiday or the festival of Pentecost. So it's very much a Jewish Old Testament holiday. And uh, the quickest way that I can explain it is that Pentecost was also called the Feast of the Harvest. So think about living 3,000 years ago when everything was agricultural. And think about what a great moment it would be that first week, the Feast of the Harvest, when you were able to go out and finally eat and enjoy all the things that you had been laboring to grow in your fields. The Feast of the Harvest, the Festival of the Harvest, was this incredible moment when people gathered to celebrate all the abundance and the provision and the food that God had blessed them with. So in Acts 2, these Jews are gathering in the capital city. They're coming from all over to celebrate the Feast of the Harvest. And that's the moment where the movement of the church starts. I don't want you to overlook the symbolism and the meaning that God started this new movement at Pentecost, the Feast of the Harvest. It's sending a subtle but clear message that this new thing is going to be fertile and fruitful and abundant and growing in ways that you can't even comprehend. The narrator also kind of brings this to our attention in verse 41 when he tells us that 3,000 people joined the church that day. The narrator also brings it to our attention in verse 47 when he says, the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. Sometimes, especially during shoulder season, especially during October and November and April, we come into church and there's maybe nobody else sitting in our pew. Maybe sometimes the sermon is boring and we don't think of church as a fruitful and a fertile place. Let's just think about the moment that this movement started, the message of the day that it happened on, and just be remem- and just remember the beautiful symbolism that God intends this movement to just be fruitful and fertile and abundant beyond anything that we can put in a box or comprehend. It's my belief that God wants Big Sky Christian Fellowship Church to be more fruitful and fertile than anybody in this room dares to comprehend. I think God wants 120-something workers sitting in these pews with these baristas, waiters, waitresses. Like, think about the message of this movement starting on Pentecost, the, the Feast of the Harvest. And think about the opportunity that we have in this town with a thousand tourists and workers and visitors coming through literally every season. And then let yourself dare to dream what this church could be. I think that when we sing... God wants a half dozen accents of J1s to mix with our Montana English. Right? God wants us to be a fruitful and fertile place with different kinds of people coming through, different ethnicities, different walks of life. You guys remember in the old Bugs Bunny cartoons when somebody would be skiing and then they would crash into the rocks and then what would happen? The St. Bernard would come and he would have that barrel around his neck. And then the, the skier would drink some whiskey and then they'd be revived. And they'd continue on their journey. Like, that's what Big Sky Christian Fellowship is supposed to be. People come to the mountains looking for adventure, looking for work, looking for a new start. And sometimes they crash 
And they need to be revived. And that's what God has placed us here to be a beautiful part of. And he wants to accomplish it more than we dare comprehend. If we can look back to the moment that this movement started and understand that it wasn't supposed to be a boring hour of the week, it was supposed to be a place of harvest that just blew our minds open with what God can do in the lives of people. All right, that's the first beautiful thing that happened on the harvest of the feast. This church was always, each church was always meant to be fruitful and fertile beyond what we comprehend. Here's another one. This new thing, the church, fulfills a previous promise throughout Scripture to expand God's presence and gifts among his people. We talk about it. Right from this first moment, we see that this movement was always supposed to fulfill a previous promise that God's presence and his gifts were going to be even more dynamically uh, demonstrated among his people than they had been in other parts in the Bible. So in today's story, the apostles are gathered to celebrate this festival of the harvest, and suddenly visible flames appear over their head. I want you to think about that for a second. Sometimes we hear a story so many times that we just figure that those details were always supposed to be in there, and they don't have any other meaning except that they're just in the story. What do you guys think is the significance of tiny flames appearing over the head of each apostle? It's extraordinarily beautiful. I want to explain it, and I don't think you'll ever think of church in the same way again. Let's talk about the Old Testament. In Genesis 15, Abraham is told to make a sacrifice before God, and he cuts this animal in half, and he falls asleep or something, and when he wakes up, he realizes that God is, is making a promise and keeping the promise, and he knows this because God is appearing as a flame passing in between the two halves of the animal. God's presence appears as fire and drifts through the pieces. You guys all know the story of Exodus 3 when Moses needs guidance and reassurance, and God's presence appears to him in what? The fire in a burning bush. In the book of Daniel, these three faithful servants of God are thrown into a blazing furnace, and they don't burn up because Daniel 3.25 tells us that God was with them in the fire. God's presence was in the fire. And in at least a half dozen places in Exodus and Nehemiah, we're told that when the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, God's presence appeared to them as a pillar of fire over the tabernacle, which was the transportable temple of God. So the second beautiful observation from Acts 2 is that this new movement is, is, is showing us that God's presence now goes out into the world through us. Do you guys understand that when that tiny little piece of fire was over their head, it's saying that God's presence is still with us, but now it goes out into the world through you. Do you get that? In the Old Testament, it's just in these dramatic instances in the wilderness. But now, because of the church, God's presence goes out into the community through us, through me, through Sarah, through Courtney. I don't want to freak them out by putting a flame over their head. You guys understand the beauty of that imagery and what is now changing in this moment where this new movement is starting. Peter doesn't want us to miss it, so if you guys have some time this week to read this story in a little bit more depth, he goes on and he quotes Joel chapter 2 from the Old Testament, and he goes on and he quotes uh, Psalm 16, which was written by David. 
Both of those Old Testament passages that he's explaining to the crowd are promises that in a future time, God's presence and gifts are going to be exercised among his people in more dramatic ways than they can even comprehend in the Old Testament. So when Peter's quoting those and there's fire on the heads of the apostles, he's saying that moment is now. And the power, the empowering part of that is that that's now true for us as church people. At least that's the ideal, at least that's the potential. Um, Peter quotes David from this beautiful passage in Psalm 16 where where David sort of explains that he doesn't really know who Jesus is going to be, but he knows that someone is going to come and die in our place so that we can be in the presence of God. That's what David says there in Psalm 16, and then he ends it with this quote that, in the future, God, you will make me full of joy in your presence. And that's what Peter quotes in his sermon, with the fire above the head of the apostles, reminding us that we now take out God's presence into our community as church people. It's, it's, it's so beautiful. And the third subtle thing, the, the third subtle but clear thing I want to point out from this story, this beautiful moment where this new movement starts, is that uh, the church, this new thing, the church reverses the curse of Babel. So uh, I think this is the best, this is the most beautiful thing to me at least. I want you guys to zoom, you have to really zoom your camera out to catch this. So now we're in Acts chapter 2. We've got to zoom out all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. We have to go all the way back to our Sunday school lessons. And we have to remember that story from Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. And let me kind of put it together and then I think you'll see it for yourself. So in Genesis 11, humans have been around for a while, for a couple generations. And they get together and for some reason they say, hey, let's make a name for ourselves. And we think of them as making a tower, but in the original Hebrew, they use this word ziggurat, which is a multi-tiered temple. So what they're actually saying is, let's build a temple that's so grand that we'll make a name for ourselves. What they're really saying is, let's do something so incredible with our technology and our efforts and our, in, 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 in this project that people will think of us and then they won't think of God anymore. That's why God gets so angry. So they build this giant temple to honor themselves, and they're too prideful, and God gets angry. And so his punishment is to scatter them through the lands. And the way that he scatters them through the lands is by giving them different languages, and they can't understand each other, and they become divided. And their pride-based moment results in separation, the inability to understand each other, displacement, things that we still experience as humans relationally to this day. So God's punishment for this pride-based movement of men seeking to not need God was the curse of Babel, the, the displacement of cultures and languages. Now I want you to think for a second what the exact opposite of that story would be. Think about what it would be like for all those elements to be exactly reversed. Because that's exactly what the story of Acts 2 is. Instead of people from one region being displaced into many People from many regions are brought together in one. Instead of a crowd being unable to understand each other because their languages were frustrated, a miracle occurs and lets all those people with different languages be understood. Instead of a pride-based movement where men declare that they'll honor themselves instead of God, God has initiated a movement where he is properly honored and worshipped. And this is so beautiful. Instead of humans being displaced, separated, and frustrated, community is formed, and people are drawn in together. You guys understand how Acts 2 is a beautiful reversal 
of the story of the Tower of Babel. So this third beautiful idea we learn about the church in Acts 2 is that the Christian church is God's plan to reverse Babel and bring unity and build community and replace our pride-based activities with ones that honor God. When I was nine years old, I could not understand why so many adults would willingly sit in a room and be so bored. I did not understand what church was all about. Now I understand the ideal. Now I understand what we're trying to do. The Christian church is God's plan to bring unity, build community, and replace our human pride-based activities with ones that honor God. I think that's such a worthy thing to give an hour of your week to. I think it's so beautiful that we can give more than an hour of our week to it. So I'm going to preach for eight hours. Think of all the kids from Florida and Georgia that come here and don't have a good winter coat. Think of all the J1s that spend six months here and never get invited into a home. Think about those trying to gain a foothold in our community that don't have enough money for regular nutritious meals. Consider everybody that comes to Big Stag trying to make a name for themselves. All that stuff is still the curse of Babylon. And the church exists to reverse it. That's what we're here to do. Acts 2 shows that the church, and in this community, our church, is the remedy or the solution to bring people together, meet their needs, and communicate like Peter does, that Jesus Christ is the reason and the power and the center of this movement. All right, let's wrap up here in three or four minutes with some encouragement for you about church life from today's passage, from Acts 2, 40 to 47. I'll go through these really quick. The first encouragement is that engagement in church life will reset and renew your heart and behaviors. Let me say that one more time. Engagement in church life will reset and renew your heart and behaviors. So after these kind of miraculous things have happened, God's people are are still gathering. They're sharing with one another. They're being taught things from, uh, from the Bible. Uh, they're eating together. They're worshiping together. Listen to what it says in uh, Acts 2.40. Um, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And that sounds exactly what a preacher would say, and it sounds pretty heavy-handed, but it's beautiful. He's saying church fixes our heart. Church resets our behaviors. Has anybody here ever done work on a deck? What, what happens after a winter? What happens after it's been rained on all summer long? Well, eventually you have to go out there and you have to either get a pressure washer or you have to sand it down or you have to remove those splinters and you have to smooth it out and you have to put some sort of covering over it and you have to make it usable again. That's what churches are supposed to do for our hearts. That's what church does for my heart. You could talk to my wife. Some of the things that I say in the house during the week are, I saw so-and-so in the post office and he didn't even say hi to me. He didn't even give me a head nod, right? Or you wouldn't believe what I heard somebody said about somebody. And I get so petty and I get so self-centered and I don't know how anybody can stand to be around me. And then about seven minutes into church, after looking out the window and hearing our worship team lead the congregation in worship, my heart is getting sanded down, and the rough edges are, are, are becoming usable. 
Right? That's what it means to save ourselves from the perverse generation. It doesn't mean we go outside and tell everybody that, that they're perverse. It means that when the world works us, we come in here and we learn about Jesus and God's love for us, and we sing about it, and we get re-centered, and we become soft and safe and usable again. And I hope you find that encouraging. Listen, I know you can stay in Bozeman for an extra two hours and get a couple more errands done. I know you can get an extra run down the ski lift. There's a lot of reasons why we don't stumble in here at 4.30. But engagement in church life will reset and renew your heart and behaviors, and I hope you understand that that's not an obligation, that is a gift that God offers to you. And we need you here as well. All right, a second encouragement is this. Committed church life will greatly expand your knowledge of God. It will also increase your experience of God. Those are two very different things. And most churches are good at one or the other. We need to be good at both. So uh, in Acts 2.42, you can read it. I don't need to read it. But in Acts 2.42, it tells us that all the believers were committed to gather for the teaching of doctrine. They needed to be taught. Well, why did Peter talk about Joel 2? Why did Peter talk about that psalm? Like, we need these things to be explained to us. We need to be, have it taught to us how the Bible is one unified story of what God has done to redeem humans through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. But then, Acts chapter 3 through Acts chapter 28 are about the most incredible miracles and wonders and weird things where God shows up and gets involved in people's life that you will ever read in the Bible. And both of those are really important because church needs to be a place where we learn about God, but then it's also a place where we go out and we recognize His experience all around us. So committed church life will greatly expand your knowledge of God, but it will also, according to the rest of the book of Acts, help you experience God. And I hope you find that encouraging. Finally, let's wrap up with this, number three. Church life offers deep fellowship that occurs throughout the week and enriches lives in material, emotional, and spiritual ways. Let me say it one more time. Church life offers a deep fellowship that occurs throughout the week and enriches lives in material, emotional, and spiritual ways. Let me uh, read those verses at the end one more time. Acts 2, 46 and 47. And uh, this might be different than your church experience. This might be a little bit different than what our church looks like sometimes. But let the ideal inspire you. They sold property and possessions and gave to everyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Please pause for a moment and contemplate what are the difficulties of living in Big Sky? Sometimes it's lonely. Sometimes we feel isolated. Sometimes it's hard to uh, pay the bills. Sometimes we don't have peers to encourage us. The list goes on and on. We see here that church life is meant to offer deep fellowship that occurs throughout the week and enriches our lives and the lives of those around us in material, emotional, and spiritual ways. Um, I hope those three things encourage you like they encourage me. Uh, I thought we'd get a lot farther today, but I just think that's enough to think about.
And I think some of those things hidden in the story uh, are just a way to uh, encourage us on what church is meant to be and what it can be if we collaborate and pursue those ideals together. So I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward and wrap up our service. As they do, I'll just say this. Um, There's been seasons where the snow is a little bit slow to come. My wife loves cross-country skiing. And in some of those years, she just takes out her skis and puts them right by the door so she can look at them in anticipation of getting out there on the trail soon. Maybe there's a time in your life where you took out like your mom or your grandma's wedding dress and you set it before you as a little girl, just looking and, and looking forward to someday being married. Maybe some of you guys spent your summer tying flies because you can't wait to get out on the river. What I'm trying to say is there's value in putting the things that we love before us and looking at them. And I think Acts chapter 2 is exactly that. This might not be our church experience all the time. Let's gaze on those beautiful ideals and look forward to experiencing them together.